Hello, Miss Laverne. Miss Lola Laverne. Is this the face that launched a thousand ships? Yeah. Yeah, it's Joe, all right. Well, it'll be a couple hours before I hit Hollywood. Can you wait? I know what you mean, baby. But you just try. Well, let's let's decide that later. After eight months at sea, all I want to do is just look at you for a long, long time. Sticklish business, anyway you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic movies. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez here once again with the fantastic Kimberly Pierce and Samantha Ellis. Ladies, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Samantha? Very excited for this discussion. Yes, we are doing an episode around Gene Kelly's birthday, and we are honored and delighted to have the fantastic Patricia Kelly with us today. Patricia, how are you? Happy to be with you. This is a great way to spend a morning for me. Thank you. Oh, it's very ironic that at the time of recording, I actually have the pirate on in the background. So I am, (laughs) I have Gene Kelly on my screen right now. (laughs) I I happen to be a huge fan of that movie. So I'm delighted that it is not everyone's list. And I think it should be. It will definitely be on somebody's list because we are talking about our top three favorite Gene Kelly movies. Now, Patricia, being Gene Kelly's wife, you're in a very privileged position that, you know, we talk a lot about our favorite actors and what we love about them. But for you, is there one thing about Gene that doesn't get talked about enough in terms of who he was as a person? I think there's several, and that's part of much of what I do. I would say his intellect, his supreme intellect, and not just in terms of dance and dance history and dance styles and choreography, but I would say really the breadth of his knowledge, the multiple languages, the reading a book a day, the the real intense study of many, many subjects. So I, I have described him as a true Renaissance man. I think the other thing would be that he was a true romantic, and I think the tenderness that he displayed, I don't think it surprises people, but I think in a way it confirms something that they want to know about him, but they they didn't know. And then I would say also his humility. He was always uh, terribly humble about his contribution and about his place in the world and never took his stardom for granted. So I would say the humility, romanticism, basic decency of the man, I I think is really the prevailing word that comes out, the integrity and overall consideration for people of every walk of life, of the underdogs that that people often didn't even think about. And Gene was very concerned about that. Now, before we get into our top threes, I think it's amazing that even 
the youngest person who has never necessarily watched a classic film, like my brother, for instance, who is in his early 20s, knows who Gene Kelly is. You know, for you, is it always weird, interesting, fascinating to know that out of there's so many amazing stars that he still is one of the most identifiable of the classic film world? It's very rewarding in the sense that that's really the drive of what I do, that I just try to keep Gene's legacy will go on no matter what. You're going to, I think, Sing in the Rain and American Paris, these movies are not going to disappear. They're 70 years old now. I think we'll see more of that. But I think that what I love is that young people, really of all ages, from I have a two and a half year old in Italy named Olmo, who's just transfixed by Gene and the movies and can't stop watching. He just actually just turned three and he was moving on to lay girls. So he's very sophisticated. But I think it ties in with what I try to represent about Gene is that Gene was way ahead of the pack. He was always ahead of his time. And he always said to me, he said, the difficult thing is to create something that is both contemporary and timeless. And I think nowadays with movie stars, they, they kind of have contemporary down. There's a big flash for a very short period of time, but then you have to really think, are we going to be watching these people in 70 years? Is this movie going to hold our imagination then? And I think because Gene was such a visionary, I believe that he's going to be around. But I love it that young people, and that's why I spend so much time with young people, because I've been on panels. I was on a panel of cinematographers in Bangkok, and one of the participants said, well, you know, you have to dumb everything down for young people. And I was thinking, well, I don't know what young people you're around, but nobody I'm around. Because if you show them Gene, if they're exposed to his work, they get it and they are connected. They understand the many dimensions of it. And so for me, it is often just a case of making sure that young people are exposed to his work and preferably up on a big screen so they can see the nuances of it and to really hear his words and understand why he did what he did, why it was so revolutionary, why it still compels us today. Before we get into the rest of the episode, here's a short little ad for our Patreon. If you're a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our channels, our Patreon website at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, as well as our Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, our YouTube channel, and our Instagram page. Help us out. If we can get 300 subscribers on Patreon, we can start a new ambitious series examining TCM's 52 must-see movies and why they matter. Now, back to the show. Well, we're excited to dive into some of our top three favorite Gene Kelly movies. I know we all have our favorites. Now, Kim and Samantha, we're going to do this round robin. If something is higher on someone else's list... We're going to use the code word Makoko this episode. So if you have something that is my three, but it's your two or your one, just say Makoko and we will come back to when it is the highest. So let's start with my number three, which is actually one of Gene Kelly's later films. It's 1980s Xanadu. I... Love Xanadu. Xanadu is the delightful story of an Australian Greek muse who helps a guy open the Pan Pacific Theater in the 1980s. And it's got disco and roller skates. And Gene Kelly 
pretty much playing the same character he played in Cover Girl. The character's name is also Danny McGuire. And there's a little bit of a backstory that he's met Olivia Newton-John's Kira in the 1940s and she was his muse. And it's a nice weird little throwback. And it's the movie that's one occult favorite. People love it or they hate it. I've shown it to people that are on both sides of the spectrum. But for me, outside of it being a nice fun slice of the 1980s and their hope of bringing back old school musicals, which didn't necessarily work in their favor. I think Gene is just so magnetic. You can see he doesn't lose an ounce of that movie star quality when he's dancing opposite Olivia Newton-John, when he's got to say some truly silly lines that sound like, you know, like really somebody wrote those. He sells it. He sells it so completely. And I think it's such a charming charming little film that thankfully has been kind of reevaluated. It's never going to be a masterpiece, but I'm glad that I'm not nearly as weird nowadays for saying how much I love it as I was when I first discovered it. Kim, Samantha, have either of you seen Xanadu? I am underviewed on it. I am looking at a DVD of it though, right here on my shelf. (laughs) I have seen it a couple times and it is such a weird, wonderful little delight. As you were talking about it, I was sitting here going, I need to watch that again because I've been especially lately really interested in the 1980s and that post-World War II golden age nostalgia that seemed to permeate. And it is such an interesting use of that. What sticks with me only after, I think, one viewing, such a beautiful film, just it shines. It's just, it looks absolutely glorious. And it is something that I would say needs a reevaluation. Samantha, I know you haven't seen it because it's from the 80s. <laughs> there is the running joke that I'm a time traveler and have not seen anything made after 1970. And you'd be right. I have not seen it, but I'm going to hint at the fact that CoverGirl may or may not appear on my list. So that gives me a reason to watch it already. I've seen about 20 Gene Kelly films. So I feel like I just need to be a completist and finish the rest. And I think Xanadu is probably the biggest that I haven't seen. So I definitely need to give it a watch. I'm so excited for you to see it. Well... It's interesting because I've introduced Xanadu at Outfests and at many at the 25th anniversary, the 35th anniversary screenings. And I'm always amazed that people love this film because it's just, people go crazy. And perhaps that's the way you need to watch it is with a group of people and the entire audience goes nuts. And at one of the screenings we did, there was a a costume contest that my friend actually won. He dressed up as Kira and in a white dress and wig and actually roller skated into the theater with me. And so there's a certain festiveness about it. But as some of you might have seen my comments on the, the DVD that Gene said it was the only movie that he worked on where nobody knew what they were doing. And I think for Gene, it was a very kind of painful experience because he was a kid who grew up in the depression. And one of the things, and certainly with his professional protocol, is that you you learn your lines, you hit your marks, you don't waste time, you don't, don't waste money, and you don't waste other people's time and money. And when Gene got to the set, there was no script. There was nothing. And they just, 
I've talked to a lot of the dancers who were in it and they were having a grand old time because they were all together. They had the music. They were just, this was like a big party. And, but that was for Jean, not kosher. And so for the number that you happen to like that shows Jean's personality, that was not in the movie originally. So when they shot the movie, the director had neglected to shoot a number between Jean and Olivia Newton-John. So when it went into previews, the comments came back and said, where is the Jean Kelly, Olivia Newton-John number? And so Jean, they tried to get Jean to come back to shoot it and he refused. He wouldn't even take their phone calls. Jean was the kind of guy that he would go very far, but once you crossed the line, then there was kind of no going back. But he finally agreed to come back on one condition that it was a closed set and that the director and the producer were nowhere near. It was only Gene and Olivia and the cinematographer and the camera operator. And so Gene choreographed that number for Olivia and staged it, shot it. It looks distinct from the rest of the movie. It's Gene. And it's the hardest thing for me to watch because it's actually Gene as I met him. He looks exactly the same and the gestures are the same. The, way he gets up out of a chair and crosses the room, the way he picks up a phone, the way he listens to the music and everything. There's so many things that resonate. I can certainly echo his comments about it, but I also have to add to that that I'm delighted if it is the vehicle that brings people to Gene, because I often hear that people see it and then they go back and watch the rest of his movies. So if, it, if that's what it takes to get people hooked on his work, then I'm fine with that. I just want them to go back and look at more of the work. Uh, but Olivia is charming and such a delight. I saw her in Australia last year and, and Jean just adored her and she adored him and she gives him a great deal of credit for the way that he choreographed to make her look good in the, in the number. And it's very charming. I mean, it really is a beautiful sequence in the films. So I hope people will look at it and then I hope they will go back and look at 20 more Jane Kelly movies. Heck yes. Heck I think yes. entry points is so, <laughs> such, so important. And that is definitely one that could really open that up. That's a very good point. Kimberly, what about you? What's your number three? Okay, I am going to, I don't know how people are going to react to this one, but I am going to do a take with Jean taking a step behind the camera. And I am going to say just for its powerful nature in my personal life, Hello Dolly, which he directed in what, 1969. So Hello Dolly, for those who haven't seen musical based on the Broadway musical, the same name following matchmaker Dolly Levi as she ends up, you know, goes to New York from Yonkers and there's exploits with dry goods store owner Horace Vandegelder played by Walter Matthau, who always fascinates me and is delightfully himself. And this movie actually came to me during a very lengthy Michael Crawford phase. And I saw him in concert probably back when I was about 11. And his description of making the film and his stories behind it was actually what took me to this movie. And I watched it because of that. I had already been kind of into classic film, but I had never really ventured 
that far ahead. And it was one that I didn't know too, too much about. And I've since kind of revisited as I've you know, researched and enjoyed Charles Nelson Riley, who was in the Broadway cast. And there's just so many random intersections here. For everything that's said about this film kind of in film history circles, and there's so many different readings, I find it such a colorful, fun, just magnetic film. The characters are so fleshed out and it's just, it's a hoot to watch and it's definitely an important film for me. So I had to pick it. I'm not, I haven't seen Hello Dolly all the way through. I've seen it once. I've seen about half. I know most of it from Wally because I use the music. I need to see that. I need to get on that. <laughs> I love it, but it's been way too long for me. I've definitely gotten more into Barbra Streisand since Funny Girls become one of my top three favorite movies. So I need to go back and revisit it. I have it. It's another one. I'm looking at the DVD on my shelf and it, I'm thinking to myself, it's been way too long. And it took me way too long to learn that Jean directed it. I really didn't know until more recently. So it makes me love it even more, the parts that I do remember. But yeah, I definitely need to revisit it. It's such a gem just in terms of the big kind of studio era feel, you know, further ahead in music when things were changing. There were so sequences that just capture that style and he taps into that nostalgia, I would say, with the choreography and the sets. And he just guides it so well, I think. It's interesting that your comment about not knowing that Gene directed it, and that's one of the reasons that I include a segment from the making of the film in my one-woman show, because people are always shocked that Gene directed it. It, it doesn't, they don't associate him with being behind the camera, and that's one of the big things that I have tried to do is to reorient them to the fact that he is very often directing what you see up on the screen. He's so prominent up on the screen that I think people forget that he's behind the scenes and not only as a director, but as a choreographer. And that's really how he wished to be remembered more than as a performer. And in Hello, Dolly, Gene envisioned as a kind of small Thornton Wilder love story, the matchmaker who didn't mm -hmm. get as a huge 70 millimeter extravaganza that Fox wanted. And Gene didn't feel that that was the right, he really wanted a much more intimate story, but obviously Fox was determined on this. And so it was, they looked around and they'd already selected Matthau and Barbara Streisand uh, to play in it. And then they looked around to find a director who could bring it in on time and on budget. And the choreo named choreographer is Michael Kidd. And you see a lot of the classic Michael Kidd steps, but Gene also choreographed three numbers in it, which I think, again, you'll see a distinct style. Uh, he choreographed Ribbons Down My Back, and he choreographed the, the famous parade scene with 12,000 extras, and he also choreographed the classic Michael Crawford number that is in Wally. And producers did not want Michael Crawford to sing in the movie because they did not think he had a good voice. So they, they mixed that and Gene had to kind of stomp his foot and insist that Michael be in it. I think he felt a kind of kinship with the kind of what Gene called that Irish whiskey tenor voice that he himself had. And I love it. I mean, I think that it, that it only takes a moment is so beautiful. And 
really is a, an important part of the film. But I recommend, highly recommend watching it on as big a screen as you can get. If you can find a 70 millimeter screening of it, which I saw here in LA a few years ago, it's absolutely spectacular to see the cinematography and the, as you said, the color, the, the expanse of this movie. I think you really, you really come away. It just really blows you away. The Jerry Herman score, and I think it, I think it's going to hold. I think, I think it's kind of come back in a way. I think what saddens me is that film quote historians and biographers in quotes tend to dampen people's interest in these movies because they will just make a comment like. It, it's no good or it's at the bottom of the heap and people then just discount them and don't bother and I wish they would just leave it to people because I think the audience understands and and they, they're the true readers of this stuff they get it and are moved by it so I just hope it will be screened more often exactly well Samantha what about your number three my number three is a little bit out of left field, but it's one of those films that holds a really, really special place in my heart. It's got to be 1954's Brigadoon. Now, I will admit... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kicking myself because it's not on the list, so I should have put it on my list, but continue. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I will admit the very first taste of classic film that I ever got was just the make them laugh scene from Singing in the Rain, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about Singing in the Rain later. But Brigadoon was the very first classic film that I saw beginning to end. And I saw it in the third grade. My music teacher was a gigantic Gene Kelly fan. And I think a lot of the critic reception today really points out the falseness, quote unquote, of the sets and how blatantly Scottish it is. You couldn't find a more Scottish movie than Brigadoon. But I think that those same things that people don't like about it are things that I love about it. It's definitely a huge guilty pleasure movie for me. I think especially the fact that I saw it when I was so young, I was still into fairy tales and just the fantasy and escapism. And I think that really drew me in. Even though the sets were fake, they it looked just out of a storybook. And that's what I loved. And I think that even though Vincent Minnelli directed it, you see so much of Gene's influence. I think that the fact that he was paired with Sid Charisse, she didn't get that many leading roles. So I think she really shines here. They were really just the two most professional dancers in Hollywood. And you see that in the Heather dance sequence. And I just love the song, almost like being in love. And I think beginning to end, it's pure corn and pure fairy tale, but I love it. And I always go back to it. I watch it every time it's on. I saw it like a month ago and I really, I just adore it. I think it deserves a place on my list for sure. If I had bothered to look through the Gene Kelly filmography before I put my list down, which I usually do and I did not this morning, I probably would have kicked Xanadu out and put Brigadoon in somewhere. So that's on me. That's my fault. But at least they're all included now. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. But no, you're totally right. Brigadoon is one of those. It's an, another movie I've tried to get people to watch. And most of my friends, including my mother, just really can't get into it. But I also think it's because they don't like musicals as a genre. So that could be it. But I think it's 
one of the most magical classic films because it gets you to buy into the premise so skillfully, which could be a hard sell. You know, I shudder to think about people remaking this. Although Kim and I both really love Schmigadoon, the Apple TV series that just came out, which is somewhat inspired by the movie and is it's just as delightful. But Sid Charisse is perfect. The Heather on the Hill sequence is so beautiful. And I know that Gene fought to get the movie to be filmed on location. And that was a fight that he did not win. But I think in the sense of, of showing somebody the reasons why stuff like Panavision or VistaVision or what is, whatever the big, the widescreen format was at the time, it's so beautifully employed here because you get to see just all of the crew work, I think, you know, the set designers and the set decorators and those beautiful matte paintings and centuries dancing on a hilltop and people in kilts. It's enough to make me forget that I don't really like Van Johnson. Sorry, Kim. I, I know. I don't, I don't care for him. I've watched a million of his movies. Can't, can't get into him, but I, I'm so happy you included it, Samantha. (laughs) <laughs> so this is one I will need to reevaluate. I probably have not watched it since I was probably their age Samantha was that it was one of my earliest introductions to classic film. Not quite, but I think I was in a Van Johnson phase and looking for all the musicals I could find. And it just, I didn't get it. I've never didn't wrap my head around it. I struggled with it, but I've since in the you know, 25 years that have passed. I watched clips for something Kristen and I was working on. And it's just so iconic, Gene, in almost like being in love, the Heather's sequence. It's And one of my biggest things that I like to say is how films can change with time. Readings can change and opinions can change. And this is one I definitely need to give another try. It's interesting because as you were speaking, I, I was thinking of my previous comment about how critics and biographers and historians can really terminate a film, can really damage the reputation just with a stroke of a pen. And I think Brigadoon falls into that category. And Gene was distressed by it during his lifetime because his first biographers said that Gene peaked at Singing in the Rain and then everything else after was a spiral downward. But Gene just said, that's absurd. He said, I did Brigadoon after. He, and he said, the, the pas de deux with the two, with Sid Charisse, he started the best classical numbers I ever did on film. And the challenge of dancing, people forget how revolutionary this was, because up until then, you had people dancing on polished floors. You, you didn't have them up on a mountain dancing on these rocks and in this dirt and gene said that Sid was a real trooper about that because it was difficult and it was hard on her feet to do it. So I kind of, even during the COVID experience, I was always reluctant to post pictures of Brigadoon because I thought people would just start saying, oh, I hate Brigadoon. But in fact, there was this outpouring of love and affection for Brigadoon, very much what you've both been saying, that that there was something about it, this kind of suspension of disbelief that people, I think, especially during the lockdown, were looking for something, this kind of magical transport to another place. And that instead of hating the fake matte paintings, which are, as you said, extraordinarily beautiful, 
they understood it and grasped it and it was it made sense to them and it it was this going to another place a magical place and they they could envision this kind of magical exchange so i've been really happy at the huge outpouring of affection for the movie certainly on my facebook and instagram and the score the learner and low it you don't get much better than that i mean it is so romantic and so beautiful and and the chase scene and the dynamic sense because gene you're right gene was behind the camera shooting many of the sequences obviously minnelli's the director but gene was there with his hand in things so I think some of the folks in Scotland object to a few of the accents and things, but I think that I'm glad to see that people are coming back and I encourage people to watch it again. Oh, you could only see it on a big screen. I, I yeah. beg to introduce it and people inevitably just go straight to singing in the rain and maybe American in Paris, maybe on the town, but rarely, if ever, Brigadoon. I think it should come up on the list. Exactly. I'm championing it for everything. TCM Film Festival 2022, Brigadoon. Let's let's do this. So I'll, my number two is a movie that I've talked about just a few minutes ago from 1948. It's The Pirate. The Pirate is, again, I love how Gene Kelly could take a premise that seems so utterly insane and create something so fun and whimsical with it. The pirate. Okay, so let's let's talk. It's set in a Spanish-speaking country, but it's a bunch of obviously American actors. So it is very hard right away to watch Judy Garland play a character named Manuela. But that's the time we're in. Manuela is in love with this pirate called Makoko. And Gene Kelly plays a performer named Seraphin who is immediately struck by Manuela, but Man- Manuela wants to marry Makoko, damn it. And she is not willing to give up that dream. And so he essentially tells her that he really is Makoko. And love blossoms. Of course, he's not. It's kind of a Dread Pirate Robert situation. <laughs> but it's so fun and so utterly amazing to kind of look at historically, you know, Vincent Minnelli and Judy Garland by this time had gotten married. She'd had her first child and she, they've been trying to make this movie for years. And I know it was a very troubled production from Garland's standpoint, but I think that it's pure insanity in the best way. I mean, there are some musical numbers in this film. The Be a Clown sequence I know always gets a lot of the attention, but the Mac the Black performance, you know, and some of the costumes that Gene's wearing in this movie are just more power to him for being able to pull them off. You know, one of them is like this pirate attire with shorty shorts that are just like, it's 1948. I am so glad that you feel confident and able to rock those. And I love it. It's one of those movies that I always say I'm never going to watch all the way through. And I always end up sitting down and just watching it, because I think that him and, and Judy Garland have such a chemistry, which I know, again, to Patricia's point about biographers and articles about this, you know, I think one of the biggest things I am always struck by in reviews is that the belief that, oh, well, Judy Garland was having such trouble. She doesn't have any chemistry with Gene, Gene Kelly in this movie. And I think that's untrue. I think they have a lot of chemistry. They have a great shorthand. And it's just a lot of fun. And it always puts a smile on my face. So if you want to hear Judy Garland say Makoko in her inimitable voice 
for, you know, 90 minutes and watch everybody have a lot of fun. Gene Kelly's got a great, like, Errol Flynn mustache in it. The Pirate. I have so much fun with The Pirate. So it's got to be my number two. This is another one I need to revisit because it has been years. And your love for this movie has actually reopened my eyes from the clips of just Judy Garland and Makoko. It's like, oh, oh, Judy, I need to see this. It's such a thirsty movie. It is. She's so thirsty and I love it. I think back on the time where I saw it and of course, you know, Be a Clown, of course, jumps to mind, but Kelly's stunts in it are just dynamic. It's one of those movies where you can really see his athleticism in all its forms. I mean, of course, we see the dancing and everything, but just how dynamic in the jumps and the swings. And there's very little that I can think of that really parallels that in terms of just showing how much of an athlete he was on top of a dancer. It's such a vital, strong, just fascinating performance. And it has been far too long since I've seen it, but that's definitely on my revisit list. I have to admit, I was genuinely upset that we were recording at this time that The Pirate is playing on TCM. And I know, Kristen, you mentioned that you saw it on the TV as we were talking. But then I remembered that I had just bought the brand new Blu-ray that was released of The Pirate. And I one of the biggest reasons why I bought it is because I have heard just lavish, lavish praise for how beautiful this restoration looks with the cinematography and everything. And it's already a beautiful film. Again, you mentioned the costumes. And I agree, Gene Kelly's athleticism really stands out. And I think if we're speaking objectively, I'm not just saying this because we're talking about him right now, but I've always said Gene is the most talented star to come out of old Hollywood. You know, his singing, his acting, his dancing, his choreography, his directing, nobody else did all of that as well as he did. And I think that objectively, you could also argue that Judy Garland was the most talented actress to come out of old Hollywood for a lot of those same reasons. So seeing them both in The Pirate, I think it's definitely their best duo their best film that they made together. So I definitely, when I say that I need to see it again, I mean, I'm watching it tonight on the Blu-ray. <laughs> I always say that the pirate, people run hot or cold on it. And I run very, very hot on it. And so does Liza Minnelli, which I think is really fun because of her father. And I agree completely. I think the chemistry between Gene and Judy in the movie is just sizzling. I mean, it's so, it just comes right off and not only the kind of sensual, sexual chemistry, but also this mutual play. I mean, they are absolutely delighting in each other and the wit and charm. And you can see them kind of breaking each other up. And again, this movie has gotten relegated to a lower status because people said that they didn't like Gene in a mustache and the, and the wig and everything. And what people missed completely was that this was a total spoof on two of Gene's childhood heroes, on John Barrymore and Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And that he and Gene and Minnelli talked about that and that this was what the character, they thought people would understand that and, and think it was funny. And they said, Gene said they just blew it because it didn't, didn't work. But yet, I think now, all these decades later, you see it, and Gene's such a cheeky character, and he's absolutely emulating Dougie Fairbanks, as he called him. You can see it in the 
athleticism, the acrobatic work. And that was what Gene saw as a little boy growing up in Pittsburgh. He didn't look at it and say, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. But it obviously sunk in. It was a kind of osmosis that he saw this man moving so athletically and yet so gracefully. And it was how he began to understand that you could be both graceful and have this tremendous athletic power. And yes, the shorts are worth watching regardless of the rest. And Gene was always interested in creating the longest line of the body. So he was always trying to pare down the clothing that he had to wear. He didn't want to wear the white tie and tails because he felt like that, all that fluttering around covered the real movement. And so he has, and he never, I remember that when long shorts kind of came into fashion at the end of his life, Gene absolutely, he just said, I do not understand that. He said, why would you wear shorts that cut your leg at that point? He always wore short shorts. And I think we can all be grateful for that. But it's <laughs> the, the music, the Cole Porter score, the lyrics that are just so, they're just taunting the censors and the, all of it, Nina, I have Nina in my show, because most people don't see it. They don't see that tremendous combination of West Indies dance. There's no tap in it. Gene is dancing for the period and the location, and he knew all of these different styles, so he incorporated them. It's, I think it's, I, I, again, on a big screen, it just jumps out at you. It's just brilliant. We need it on the big screen so we can take in all the, the beauty of the sets and the actors, as well as the shorts. I mean, really, it's about the shorts. I mean, I think we just costume. need a Gene Kelly festival at this point. Yes. <laughs> I'd be happy. I mean, we had one at Lincoln Center several years ago. We, we showed most of Gene's movies in 2012 and for what would have been his 100th birthday. And I, I wish we could, too. I would love to talk about these things. That's why I do it in my one-woman show. I have all of these clips from these movies to just introduce people to, as I said, the breadth of his work as a dancer, but also as a choreographer. So they see the Spanish dance. They see the acrobatic numbers. They see the tap numbers. They see classical ballet. And I think that then they come away with a much broader understanding of the facility that this guy had with not only literal languages like Italian and French and Yiddish, but with the language of dance. He really studied it all and could perform it all. Kim, what's your number two? I have gone through about three different films to pick this. And this one ended up bumping everything. I reevaluated my list this morning. And I am going to take a step away from musicals and cite Marjorie Morningstar as my number two. Uh, Marjorie Morningstar, for those who haven't seen, about a young woman played by Natalie Wood, who's kind of on that cusp of puberty and you know becoming a woman as Natalie Wood played so well in the late 1950s. She goes off to work at a summer camp where she meets Sheen Kelly's as Noel Ehrman and develops the you know fiercest of crushes on this older distinguished man who's you know composing music and just all about art. And this story is mainly about her growing up and coming to terms with life and crossing paths with Martin Milner, who everybody and you know who follows me will know my feelings for. But I, this, to me, is such a beautiful, centered, grounded 
film and Kelly is amazing in what he brings. It's such a serious, layered, complex performance in my most recent kind of rewatch of it. Just what struck me is how he's almost playing in his own star persona and searching for the opposite. You know, it's he's exploring almost what people see on screen and it's almost a takedown of his persona. It's so interesting and just, I love everything about that film. I need to see it. It's, I'm such a big Natalie Wood fan. She was the first ever actress that I really adored. And it's just like both of them in their prime. And I've I've been dying to see it. It's a really hard one to find. I stumble on it every so often. It's, I think I see it on cable, but I, yeah, I would agree. It's, I saw it a long, long time ago and I just kind of have to find it every couple of years because I just love it so much. I have to see this one still. I've never seen it. So I'm going to let Patricia give her thoughts because I, yeah, I have to see this one. I got to cross it off the list. I fail. Marjorie Morningstar, I think it's it's an interesting movie because Gene loved the book, but, and he really, I think, was very excited about this opportunity. The thing is that Gene actually was taught in the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. He taught at the Beth Shalom Shul, and so he was, spoke Yiddish. He was a the Shabbos goy there and had a great uh, affinity for this Squirrel Hill community. And I think he was looking forward to exploring some of that Jewish tradition in the movie. And Hollywood managed to water most of that down uh, in it. So hence you get Natalie Wood and playing the lead and you get Gene playing Noel Ehrman, which is kind of interesting. But I think it is, I think a very precious love in there is just one of the, the most beautiful things that Gene ever sang. And I think it's, the movie is very interesting because it touches so many people personally. Many, many, many people have had that same experience of going off to a camp and in the Catskills and falling in love with the drama coach, the teacher, the, the, the person, the very handsome guy. And I think that's one of the reasons that it was so popular is that just people identified with it. And yeah, it's, I think Jean looks great in it. And Natalie Wood obviously is beautiful. So it's, and, and again, you see the short white shorts that he's got on. So it's another short movie. (laughs) (laughs) Samantha, what's your number two? I touched on it a little bit earlier. My number two definitely has to go to Cover Girl from 1944. I would say that Rita Hayworth is one of the few actresses that I have just been obsessed with as far as my introduction to classic film. And I think that there really isn't a more beautiful pair on screen. There are very few that compare to Gene Kelly and Rita Hayworth. I think the Technicolor is just amazing. They look so beautiful together and both of them, the way that they dance, it's just magical on screen. And I think that the mirror dance sequence where he dances in front of the shop window is probably, in my opinion, Gene's most technically masterful dance that he ever executed on screen. And I think that the fact that he was even willing to try to make that work just for entertainment and just to try it with that double exposure on screen, I think is just so cool. 
And I think it's probably the best musical, in my opinion, of the 1940s, which is saying a lot because there are a lot of really amazing ones. And the fact that it doesn't get as much attention as I think it should is just a crime because it's just so beautiful. It's so fun. The Phil Silver scenes are so funny. And it's just, I I couldn't speak highly enough of it. It's just so gorgeous and fun and amazing. It shows something that there's been, he has so much movie output, so much amazing output here that we haven't had to Makoko any of us yet. And what strikes me about CoverGirl always is just how early it was in his work and just, again, how quintessentially he brings that persona that was that always comes across. He's so young in there and it was so far before some of the other output that we think about and just he's there. He's fair and charismatic and just everything that we come to associate with Gene Kelly is all just right there on the screen. It never fails to blow my mind that this was just two years after his very first film. The fact that he could put something out that's such a masterpiece, really. Really, all of them are, to a certain extent, in their own ways. And the fact that CoverGirl is one that I always go back to, and it is so early, is just so amazing. It's interesting because Gene was loaned out by MGM to Columbia to do this picture MGM did not know what to do with Gene Kelly. They had no idea of the complexity of his abilities. So they just kind of stuck him in these B pictures and things that are like Pilot Number 5 and Cross of Lorraine and things. And he was yearning to experiment, but he got traded to Columbia to do this picture. And when he came on initially, they had already cast Rita Hayworth. They had already started the picture and the head of the studio Harry Cohn did not want Gene in the movie. He thought Gene was not right. But it was a producer, Arthur Schwartz, who convinced Harry Cohn to at least do an audition of Gene. And Gene said it was more like a New York City brawl than any audition he'd experienced. And that Harry Cohn, who had quite a reputation for being a tough guy, was yelling every expletive in the book and they were fighting. But Gene said that Harry Cohn was a kind of guy he could understand. He didn't like a guy like L.B. Mayer, who was head of MGM, because Mayer would lie and tell stories and was very duplicitous. Whereas Harry Cohn was just straightforward. Just what you see is what you got. And so Gene said he was like the New Jersey bouncers that he knew and everything. And so he and Harry Cohn eventually really hit it off. And Rita Hayworth was the gold of... Columbia. And all Harry Cohn cared about is that Rita Hayworth looked terrific in this. And he basically said to Jean, if if you don't make her look good, I'll I'll break your legs. It was that kind of relationship. And Jean adored Rita. And you can see that. And he adored Phil Silvers. And I think that the three of them together, it's this extraordinary palship of the three that is really palpable. You can see that they're having fun. And it was Harry Cohn that Gene convinced Harry Cohn to knock the walls out in the studio to make for the broad Make Way for Tomorrow number. And then it was Harry Cohn who agreed to let Gene experiment with the cover girl alter ego number. And by that time, no one believed that dollying and panning and double exposure in Technicolor was possible. Everyone told Gene he was crazy. And even the director, Charles Vidor, shut down production and left. So he had nothing to do with the alter ego number. He was gone. And it was Harry Cohn who said to Gene, go ahead. And that was really 
the pivotal mark in Gene's career because from that point forward, he decided that he originally was not intending to even stay in Hollywood. He thought he would go back to the Broadway stage, but it was that movie and that number that said, I need to stay here and figure this thing out to figure out how to capture dance on film. And so I think when, when you watch the alter ego number now, I mean, now with computers, it's easy. You just shoot it once and then you do it again. But then he had to do the number once and they had to come back and drape the entire set in black velvet. And he had to hit all of his marks in the dark, but he knew he was able to do it if he coordinated his movement with musical beats. And that was really the key. So the camera is moving to musical beats the camera operator did not know music, so Gene's assistants would stand behind the camera and call out the beats to move the camera forward, to stop it, the way to dolly and pan. It was extraordinary. And when you look at it and you remember it's 1944, I talk about revolutionary. It was so far ahead of its time. And and I'm with you on it. I just think, again, I try to introduce it. I've only, I think I've introduced it only twice at the TCM Festival. And Rita was not a really highly trained dancer, but he said she had a, her family. She obviously came from a dancing family, the Cancinos, and her, it was her uncle, in fact, who taught Jean Spanish dance. But he said she had a great fluidity of movement, and you can see that in the number that they did together, that it's just, she just moves beautifully. And I have that number long ago and far away. Number one, the music is great. And I have it in my show, and I always, I'm watching it. I get so involved in looking at the beauty of these two people that I have to remind myself that I have to get up and talk again because I have to kind of come out of this trance that I'm in watching them. So yeah, watch it, everybody. Exactly. Well, that brings us to number one. I could have picked a couple of things. We probably won't have time for honorable mentions, but, uh, you know, Anchors Away on the Town would have been somewhere on my list. But for me, I'm going to be completely unoriginal. And I'm going to say my number one is 1952's Singing in the Rain. This is mm-hmm. the classic film that, that got Should we? Into... Should I Makoko that if it's yeah, the same sure. one? Are we just all going to say Makoko? Should we just talk point? Singing in the Rain now? <laughs> We're all just going to talk Singing in the Rain. <laughs> Singing in the Rain, to me, you know, the story of John Lockwood, Hollywood superstar who has to navigate the talkies. I watched it for the first time in a film class that I took in high school, which, by the way, my class, my high school no longer offers electives like that anymore. So missed opportunity. And we were fortunate to have a substitute teacher who had grown up on the lot and was telling us stories about Sid Charisse and Debbie Reynolds. And I was just fascinated by this guy and I wish I had gotten his name but the rest of my class of 16 17 year old kids didn't really care they had no idea who these people were and it still upsets me to this day and I'm well out of high school but I think the movie is it's a perfect movie I mean I know a lot of people use it as a means of getting others into classic cinema to teach people about the transition from silent film to talkies it's a great gateway in a lot of ways but I think that just on its own merits It's just a perfect encapsulation of, I think, why we all love talking about this era in these films, because it's fun, it's hilarious, everybody is on their A-game. You know, I'm a big fan of Jean Hagen's Lima Lamont, I still quote her all the time, and Debbie, I know we're, Samantha and I are big Debbie Reynolds fans, and watching her as a young girl just 
hold her own opposite Jean, you know, having very little to no dance training. I think that she does so good in that. It's just, it's a perfect movie. I think we can all agree. It's, it's a perfect movie. It had to be my number one. I'm pretty sure it's all of our number ones, correct? It is. It is. It is. We couldn't speak highly enough of this film. In addition to Jean's talent, I think the thing that I love the most about him is his accessibility. Pretty much every classic movie fan that I've talked to, when you ask them what the first movie that they saw that made them realize how amazing classic cinema is, is Singing in the Rain. It's the perfect gateway drug to classic film. And it shows. Of course, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Debbie Reynolds. She's essentially my favorite actress. I'm literally going to get her handwriting tattooed on me. (laughs) So I just adore her. And I think that the chemistry is so amazing. It's really, it's another one of those three people like Rita and Phil Silvers and Jean. You've got Debbie and Donald O'Connor and Jean, and they play off of each other so well. And all of the dancing is just perfect. The songs are perfect. I literally have my Singing in the Rain vinyl that I play all the time because every song, you can't skip one. It's, it's a perfect movie. It is the perfect classic film gateway. I mean, I've talked about it plenty of times. That was the movie that first opened my eyes. I think I rented it in the video store because I'd seen it in the great movie ride, you know, when I was young. And it's one of those essentials that even if you haven't seen classic film, you know of that film. And I was maybe 10 or 11, rented it from the video store and fell in love and had to rent every other MGM musical that I could find. And I think I've recounted, we had yearly birthday parties for Donald O'Connor for a long time in our house for, you know, me and the neighbor girls. And it's, I'm being completely unoriginal here, like, but we all keep saying it's a perfect movie. There's not one moment that doesn't play well. And it's always been my favorite movie. It's still, it's not even my favorite Gene Kelly film. It's my favorite movie. And that has not changed since I was probably 10 or 11 years old, whenever I first watched this movie and it sticks with you. I think one of the things I've seen it just a couple of times, (laughs) like, Every time I go someplace, you know, it's always like, we're going to show Singing in the Rain. It's like, okay. And But it, what's interesting to me is that I've seen it so many times and so, sit in the big theaters. But I notice so many new details. Every time I watch it, I notice something else. I mean, I never noticed that Donald Connor's tie is this striped tie. And then I love when they come in. Usually your eye is on Gene and Gene Hagen when they enter the theater and he's doing his dignity, always dignity speech. But I was allowed, because I'd seen it so much, I started to drift over to look at Donald O'Connor. And if you watch his eyes, he's rolling his eyes and it's just classic. And I hadn't noticed that before. And then I introduced the film in Texas many years ago. We flew down. I flew down with Donald O'Connor's widow and Sid Charisse. And Donald's widows talked about the fact that when they're doing Moses Supposes, she said, watch it. Watch, Watch how Donald just keeps looking over to check Gene. And I had not noticed that. I've been focusing on Gene and he does. He just spots him constantly. But Gene really thought he was the unsung hero that he never got the credit he deserved as one of the greatest improvisational comedians. Gene also put Phil Silvers in that category. And I think that Gene thought Moses Supposes was the best tap number that he ever did on film. And I think it's it still just holds up. I think you can't discount the wit 
of the Comden and Green script that there's so many movies that you watch that you go to and you go, oh, that's a 70s movie or, oh, that's 80s humor or that's 90s humor. Or, that's It holds up. It's still funny. And it's funny for, I always say there's no demographic. It's funny to a two and a half year old and it's funny to a 102 year old. And that's very hard to do that, to have something that's funny to all ages and also something that's funny to men and women alike, uh, half and half. There's no distinction. And so Gene always said that he thought Gene Hagen was the glue that really held the picture together. He adored her. And really, when you think about it, it's such a funny movie because here is Debbie Reynolds supposedly dubbing Gene Hagen's voice, but it's actually Betty Noyce, who is dubbing Debbie Reynolds singing for Gene Hagen. And then when you want to hear what Gene Hagen really sounds like in real life, it is Debbie Reynolds supposedly dubbing the voice of Gene Hagen, and that's actually Gene Hagen's real. And so when it's, she says, until the stars turn cold, that's really Gene Hagen. So you've got this thing inside this movie, which is all about sound and everything and dubbing and all this stuff is going on. And so I guess I, I'm sorry that there's so much mythology about the movie. I think that there's so much about the movie that doesn't need any embellishment. You don't need to say that there's milk in the water so that you can see the raindrops, which is not true. It's phenomenal cinematography and lighting, the backlighting. And you don't need, Donald O'Connor would always add all these things. He, we'd go to dinner with him and he would tell these stories about how Gene deliberately broke his violin bow and making fit as a fiddle. And I walked out to the car with Gene and I said, you never told me that. He said, it never happened. He said, I'm directing, choreographing and starring this movie. I can't shut down the production and go take a nap and pretend I've broken the, the bow because of that. But I think it, so all these fanciful stories come up and your buddy Debbie Reynolds really embellished the most of anybody. And, and I think it's kind of sad that because she went from, it just really depended when you would get her and what audience it was. You know, is, she, is she trying to get a laugh out of an audience? If you read the production notes that are in the Arthur Freed collection at USC, it's a detailed minute by minute account, two different accounts by two different people of what transpired on that set. So there's no bloody feet with doctors coming to the set and having to be carried off the set. There's no spending the night at the studio because Jean kept her working so long. It shows exactly when she and all the others check in, when they go to lunch, when they leave for the day. So I, I'm sorry that I think it would have been nice to just kind of acknowledge that it made her a star, which she does many times, but the rest of it has just gone down and it's in print and it becomes the truth. And I think this notion of Jean is this horrible taskmaster. Debbie was primarily trained by Jean's assistants, by Jeannie Coyne and Carol Haney. And so, and then by Ernie Flatt, who came in to teach her as well. So Obviously, Jean is there, but her real dance training came from these three other people. And of course, you know, I think any, if you ask any dancer or choreographer, you have to hit your mark. If you don't hit your mark and you're not, your face isn't in the right position, and everything, then you have to do it again. And for the precision required, for, as you were saying, for the three of them to tip over that 
sofa. And if you watch, go back and watch it and watch how many footprints there are on that sofa, how many times they had to try to tip that to go over. And he's choreographing to her. So there are times when Jean and Donald are doing different steps, but Jean made her look the best she could ever look. And that was what he did for everybody. Did it for Livy Newton-John, he did it for Rita, he did it for Debbie. So I would encourage people to watch it, but then to really suspend the mythology and just kind of enjoy it straight on. Dispense with the stuff that's out there because it's just not true and it's provable that it's not true. So I toured the U.S. with it in 19 for its 60th anniversary with the great Rita Moreno, who plays Zelda in it. She has a very small role, but she always credited Jean for the fact that it was the first time she had ever not been typecast as a Latina. And she said that People would always ask Ms. Moreno, why are people still watching this 60 years later? And she, to your, all three of your points, she said, because it is a perfect musical. And she said Gene was in constant motion. He's behind the camera, he's in front of the camera, he's back behind the camera, he's setting the lights, he's setting the camera angles, and he goes and changes into his costume, shoots the number, and goes back and does it again. It's a stunning thing. And I love that it holds up. And during COVID, I kept getting all of these messages from people of one town in England, it started to rain and everybody came out with their umbrellas, socially distanced down the street with Jean on the stereo. And they all did sing it in the rain. And all these classes of kids that were invited to do their own rendition. And then they did a big screen. You saw each of them in their backyards and whatever they wanted to do. And I think that Gene always wanted to come back in 100 years to see what people would be watching. And we're almost at 70 years for singing in the rain. And I won't be around in 100 years. You will. So you'll have to think of that when we hit that mark and think about, I'm going to guess that Singing in the Rain is still being watched. And I think it deserves to be. Definitely, definitely. We did have a few listeners who chimed in with their thoughts on Twitter. A lot of people said Singing in the Rain, of course. We also had at Dame Bell Rose who said Singing in the Rain is perfect, but my heart belongs to the pirate. At Dominique Review said, I know it's cliche, but in American Paris, outside the mainstream Gene Kelly, though, it would be a hard choice between Thousands Cheer or Living in a Big Way or Christmas Holiday, which is a non-musical noir that I still really want to see that is not easy to find, unfortunately. I want to get to that eventually. Some other suggestions we got. James L. Nybar said, I like Cover Girl a lot. I also like the Rye character he played in Inherit the Wind which showed another dimension of his talents. At Candy underscore TS Lady said, Inherit the Wind for Dramatic and On the Town for Musical. And Jane Haig said, Summer Stock and Marjorie Morningstar. Patricia, before we let you go, is there a movie of Jean's that we didn't mention this episode that you think people should check out? And where can fans find you and your work on social media, all of that? There's one that didn't get mentioned at all, and I think it, again, gets lopped off because of the what's written about it. But as a kind of bookend to Singing in the Rain, to look at It's Always Fair Weather, it's got a brilliant Comden and Green script. 
it's a little darker, but the numbers in it, I think, are fantastic with Jean, and they're all dancing on the trash can lids. This The roller skating number, Can It Be I Like Myself, with Andre Previn's music, I think is beautiful. Uh, Sid Charisse is gorgeous. And again, I think it should be watched. It just never is. It's never on the list. And I think that also the movie with got quite a cast but it's Gene and Shirley MacLaine in it dancing together and Gene is playing a character named Pinky Benson and there are pieces in that that I just think are terrific and I really think show Gene's sensitivity and humor and characters but it's what a way to go and it it just it doesn't come up but the, the costumes in it are mind-boggling but people can follow me and I do respond so people can follow me on Facebook at Gene Kelly the legacy and on Instagram at Gene Kelly legacy I'm on LinkedIn as Patricia Ward Kelly I do answer so if you don't hear back from me just keep poking me because it might have gotten lost or I might have missed a message so don't hesitate it I do try to respond and I think you'll find I was very reluctant to go out on social media. I I thought, oh no, this is going to be a disaster. This is just going to be a lot of silly comments and things. And I've been very impressed with the thoughtfulness and the sincerity of a lot of the comments. And it was, as I mentioned, really how I began to rethink Brigadoon. I I felt that way about the movie, but I was really happy to see the people express why. I said, why do you love it? And they told me why. And it really, it resonates definitely with what Samantha was saying. And I encourage people to not only to communicate with me, but to post because other people respond as well. So thank you for all this. This is so much fun. I would love to give kind of a shout out. I get to head to Scotland after all of this lockdown and it looks like a quarantine is not required. So I'm headed to uh, Inverness at the end of August, and I will be doing my one-woman show, Gene Kelly, The Legacy, there at the beautiful Eden Court Theater, and really encourage people, because it kind of takes everything you're talking about and puts it all in one, one event, in one evening. So instead of having one movie, I'm actually talking, I have multiple clips, and then I weave the stories in between, and I think it gives people a very broad perspective on, I I always say it's kind of taking you on a journey into Gene's heart and mind. And I go into the end of his life and his death and how you begin to deal with loss and grief and how you deal with a legacy of this magnitude. And then we have a very exciting thing happening again in Scotland. It is the premiere of the remounted version of the ballet that Gene created for the Paris Opera Ballet in 1960. And I'm just so delighted that Christopher Hampson, who's head of Scottish Ballet, decided to take this on and to to put this on in Glasgow. And so the, the world premiere of this will be September 23rd at Theatre Royal in, in Glasgow. It will travel through Scotland. And then ultimately, our hope is that it will go worldwide once we get the Scottish trials through. But it's an exciting thing. And it kind of also echoes what we've been talking about because it's to Gershwin's Concerto in F. And it was the first time ever that an American-born choreographer had premiered a work at the Paris Opera, at the Palais Garnier. So it was quite revolutionary, and and the reviews all say that it rocked the house. It had a 22 curtain calls, and 
And when you look at Jean's handwritten notes on the music itself, which I did with the director, I it goes from a, a ba- classical ballet term to a tap term to a Lindy Hop move to the Charleston, the tango, to jazz, to modern. And it's a facility with the language that he had with his own, with language, the way he spoke with intermixing French and Latin phrases and everything. And so he just moved through. And although a Scottish ballet is great because most of the dancers are trained in multiple styles of dance, when I spoke to the dancers, they all said it is very hard to do this choreography because they're not used to switching from one so quickly to being on point, to going to jazz, to going to the Lindy, to uh, there are things like bent corkscrew and bandy twist and uh, pirouette and tour de jet and tour jeté. And it's exciting. And I hope if anybody is anywhere near Glasgow, they will be able to get there to see that. And it will then travel to Inverness and Aberdeen and Edinburgh. But I'll be there for the September 23rd and 24th for the opening. So and then the one woman show will everything will start to get out again uh, once we had to shut down everything because of COVID. But now my, I have a big live symphony show uh, with clips. I read the stories, but there's a 70-piece orchestra with me on stage, and you hear the music live. And it's really a way of understanding Gene's relationship to composers and arrangers and musicians. So with hope, we'll get a lot of these things out and around back to Australia, where I did the one-woman show before lockdown and hope to get the symphonic show. So it's going to be an exciting time, and I, I do appreciate your help in kind of broadcasting that. We'll get Gene's legacy out there as much as we possibly can. Exactly, exactly. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for your time today. It's been, it's been such a pleasure. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcast. Help us out and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We've been fortunate to get a new one. And they really help. We're available on Spotify, Audible, all the podcast apps. We are also on all the social medias, including Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, Instagram at ticklish biz, and our YouTube channel. We don't have enough followers for our URL yet. So you just have to search ticklish business and you will find our videos on there. As always, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklish biz. We are trying to get 300 subscribers so that we can start a 52-episode series analyzing every movie in TCM's The Essentials book. But we also have our True Crime Summer Series that we did this summer, and we're going to be doing a lot more content there over the next couple of months. Samantha, you are our Cooking with the Stars person. What other projects do you have going on? Where can fans find you online? Well, you can find my website at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. As you mentioned, you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And I'm on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And please check out our website at journeysinclassicfilm.com where we have reviews, exclusive interviews there, show notes, everything. And I am on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Kimberly, what about you? 
I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at kpier624. Over at the website, we this will be coming out towards the tail end of Summer Under the Stars. So definitely check out that and just see what we have dropping for each star. But then lots of YouTube content particularly coming through, looking at lots of classic TV with more reviews and lots more bonus interviews coming soon. And we will be back with a new episode next time. Till then.